The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Next Issue, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Next Issue out for free at nextissue.com slash culture. That's nextissue.com slash culture. And by WhisperSync for Voice, an Amazon and Audible innovation. Add narration to over 60,000 Kindle bestsellers and popular titles. Read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by switching to audio and listening on your phone. Learn more about WhisperSync for Voice by visiting Amazon.com slash CultureFest. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, Will There Be a Zombie Around the Corner edition. It's Wednesday, August 26th, and on today's program, we're going to talk about the film Diary of a Teenage Girl, the debut of the Walking Dead companion show Fear the Walking Dead, and finally, the Ashley Madison hack. Both Dana and Steve have abandoned me this week, but I am here with a candle in the darkness, June Thomas, by my side to guide me through this desolate strait. Hi, June. Hello, Julia. You're flickering brightly today. Well, thank you. (laughs) Uh, And we are going to be joined by a panoply of fantastic guests, including Laura Miller, Mike Volo, and Amanda Hess. Before we start with our first segment, though, I do want to remind our listeners about our live show in Chicago on September 22nd at the Music Box Theater. We are very excited to go to what I have now been told it's acceptable to call the Windy City, but only if I am aware that the windiness refers to the lengthy orations of the town's known politicians and not the climatological effects of the lake and the weather that it produces. Uh I did not fact check that. So that's just what one person told me on Facebook, but I'm sure it's true. Anyway, we're coming to the Windy City and you can buy tickets to it at slate.com slash live. And when you're there, you can also buy tickets to... Julia, I just want to jump on to say if you're buying tickets to a live event and you happen to be in D.C. on Monday, September 21st at the Woolly Mammoth Theater, there's going to be a live double X gab fest. So perhaps that might be an option for you. Also, if anyone makes it to both shows, I will take you out for dinner. So the standing offer. And I'll buy you a drink. All right. This is turning into an expensive date, but okay. (laughs) If you can make it to both the DC double X show and the live culture show in Chicago, we will all dine. We We will will fit you. And uh, also, just so you know, June and I are going to chat about back-to-school rituals, whether we still have them and what we think about them in this week's Slate Plus segment. All right, on to our next topic. Joining us for our first topic, I'm so thrilled to have Laura Miller on the show. Laura Miller is our new books and culture columnist at Slate. Hello and welcome. It's great to be here. We're so glad to. Are we your official Slate podcast debut? That's right. Yes. (laughs) Score. Victory. (laughs) Well, you're on today because we are discussing the new film, Diary of a Teenage Girl. It's directed by Marielle Heller and adapted from a graphic novel by Phoebe Gleckner. And it stars Belle Pauly as a teenage girl, as the titular teenage girl, playing the daughter of Kristen Wiig, who gets entangled with Kristen Wiig's boyfriend, played by Alexander Sarsgaard. Let's start by listening to a clip from the film. When I was in high school, boys were all over me. (laughs) Like my dad? Yeah. Yeah, your dad and I are crazy about each other. 
he wasn't messed up then. I mean, he was just a wannabe artist with a the world attitude. And he rode a Triumph Blackbird. Have I ever told you that? It was fantastic. And my parents hated him. It was so hot. You know, you're not gonna have that bod forever, man. I know that's not very feminist of me to say, but you might be happier if you put it out there a little bit, you know? Wear some makeup. More skirt once in a while? Jesus. Get some attention. You have a kind of power, you know, you just... You don't know it yet. If I'm remembering that scene correctly, those plate sounds are the sounds of Kristen Wiig playing the mom clearing and sandwich away from the daughter who perceives herself as fat uh, before she's finished eating it. (laughs) So you get a good portrait of the mother-daughter dynamic in the film. Laura, you wrote about this film and and the book it's adapted from for us. Tell us first what you thought of the movie. I really loved it. In particular, Belle Powley's performance succeeded at doing something that movies about the sexuality of teenage girls or that have teenage girls as objects of desire in them rarely do, which is really pull you into the feelings and mind of many and kind of forces you to see the world as she sees it. And that seems so unusual to me, especially because it's not treated as a a sort of uniformly traumatic or difficult experience. Although she has a lot of emotional ups and downs, there's as much joy as pain in her experiences. Whereas some of the other films that I've seen about teenage girls who get involved with older men, it's just a focus on their suffering and their their loneliness and how awful it is. I'm thinking of the film Fish Tank, which is a great film, but is somber and sort of joyless in a way that this isn't. Yeah, I agree. There's a real joy and exuberance to this tale of statutory rape. (laughs) (laughs) And that is startling and surprising and strangely winning. I, I agree. And I think we could talk more about the dynamics. But before we get to that, June, tell us what you thought of the film. I agree entirely with Laura. I, I found it very charming. It's funny, and her life is interesting. Um, you know, she's she's not a kid who's bored, and she, you know, she's very creative. And I I love seeing that. And I did love the sort of the, you know, the agency that she has. She, you know, she's the one who brought about this situation. She's the one who seduced her mother's boyfriend, who's a thirty-five-year-old man, twenty years older than her. And there's something really, you know, you kind of feel her success. Yeah, uh, and it, it's, it's, it feels like you go, girl. I mean, it feels it feels like a crazy story to be watching, and it feels a part of the jolt of the movie. I think is the power of watching something so unexpected, and the whirring of your mental machinery as you try and figure out how you feel about what you're watching and why as you watch it. And I think the key to the movie pulling off this story is that she clearly has the agency in the film version, which, as you noted in your piece, Laura, is is not the case in the. <laughs> In yeah. the graphic novel, right? In the graphic novel, it's sort of somewhere between a novel and a graphic novel. It has some illustrations, but it has big passages of text. And it is Minnie's diary, so you don't get the adult perspective on what's happening at all. But he is more the initiator in the book. And um, Gluckner has said 
that she feels that the relationship was abusive. Because it was based on a, a real experience in her yes, life. Yes, yeah. yes. It's very, it's a fairly autobiographical story. But interesting, the language that she uses to describe the abusiveness of it has very little to do with sex and has more to do with the emotions. She mm-hmm. felt she was really in love with him and he was just sort of trifling with her feelings. Right. And I think, you know, to make this read on film and to make it, you know, not so reprehensible that you can actually get inside the sexuality of a teenage girl and a girl discovering her own power and its limits and what feels good and what doesn't and experiencing sexual mistakes in a way that d- that does not feel ashen and stricken and traumatized and more exploratory and learning oriented mm. they do make a couple key yeah. distinctions which is that you know the mini character is the instigator and the Monroe character that's the name of the the boyfriend character played by Alexander Sarsgaard is you know just sort of this cereal eating cartoon watching <laughs> vitamin peddling <laughs> sailboat dreaming doofus who is really amazingly played, I think, by Alexander Sarsgaard, who I sort of have written off as like a block of ice based on his performance in True Blood, which I saw a little (laughs) bit of where he just seemed like all cheekbones and blue-eyed hauteur. And I didn't really... I was like, oh, they just got some, some, you know, Nordic model to play this part, and I'm sure he will never see him again. And he's amazing, I thought. Yeah. He does it. I mean, what a crazy role to sign up for. Like, oh, come, please come be our statutory rapist. <laughs> um, you know, it'll be a bundle of fun. Yeah. I don't know if we've mentioned that it's set in 1976. Oh, no, we have not. Which is really, really key, and not only to the great look of the place. I mean, Alexander Sarsgaard has a killer mustache, <laughs> which always looks really weird on blonde people or light, sandy-haired <laughs> people. But just the way, you know, the style of parenting, which, I don't know, for yeah. me, I think I, I just associate with 1976 instead of with just poor parenting. But that is such a trip, too. Yeah, no, a lot of doing coke with your kids. It's it's uh <laughs> and very like the art direction is so like everything from the wallpaper to the cups that they use is so period. It's really uncanny cuz I'm about the same age as Minnie and it was eerie to see it because it was so completely seamless the way that 1976 was a vote. Well, and I think the direction of the film is is really extraordinary and helps get you into this mental state where you can understand all of the subjectivity of this potent young girl and feel like you understand her ups and downs without feeling like you're watching something happen to her. You're watching something that she's doing. And I think the set design and production design are a part of that. The film also makes very interesting use of illustration. The illustrations in the film are by an illustrator named Sarah Gunner's daughter, who, not Phoebe Gluckner, but are apparently similar in style mm-hmm. to Gluckner's illustrations. And at moments of heightened emotion, charming little doodles adorn the screen in ways that I found when when it first happened, I was like, oh, is this going to be one of those movies? <laughs> but in the end, I thought they worked really beautifully to tell the story and to help you understand when when things reached a emotional point so heightened that they couldn't quite be contained by the real world. That was really interesting to me, though, because maybe because her parents or her mother and her mother's, you know, the people that her mother brings into the house are so, at least, you know, from our point of view, so terrible, so neglectful, irresponsible, such bad models that somehow that distracted me or 
somehow made me suspend my moral judgment of Minnie. Like, she's a kid. She's 15 years old. What does she know? What? How could she make good decisions when this is the bad example that she's got? And that felt very clever that... Whereas I think one of the problems of the movies, you know, maybe in the old days because of, you know, the code and all of that stuff, but is that it's too moralistic, you know, you have to punish. And although Minnie does face consequences, I mean, there's some bad things happen. She doesn't just, you know, get to fly away like one of these little cartoon birds that appears. She's, she's, uh, you know, comes face to face with some difficult and dangerous situations, but that moral judgment is suspended and that felt really radical and, and Amazing. Well, I think that's part of setting it in the 70s in addition to the source material is it was this moment of, you know, where sexual mores were incredibly different and and totally out the window in a way. And, you know, anything you read about the sexual mores of the 70s makes you feel like that was not a different decade. That was a different planet. And probably thankfully so in in most respects. Right. But I I think you're right that the way that they frame the parents there is clever in terms of suspending your moral judgment. What did you guys think of Kristen Wiig as the chippy mom? who we heard in that clip. I liked her, but I felt like no one in that movie could hold a candle to Belle Pally. I just only wanted to watch her when she was on the screen. I just, I felt that she overshadowed everyone else in the picture. Right, and in a way, all of the other characters are a little bit thinner because we're so inside the Minnie Getz character's world. But I I wasn't sure that the script did the Kristen Wiig character justice. She, she I think the movie might have been a notch more interesting if the mother had been a notch more sympathetic. She's so self-absorbed. It's it's a little hard to get your head around. Although I, I wonder if I, if that's part of it being the diary of a young girl, you know, that as you said in your in your piece, uh, Laura, you sort of wonder, wow, did she really get to have, you know, an affair with a guy like that and a, and a woman that hot? Like, wow, it is her perspective. So there are certain people who you know she would present sympathetically, like her love objects, and then the person who she would, like, bag on, like her sister, Gretel, who is awful, uh, you know, in the way that little sisters are, not objectively in the way that, you know, 10-year-old girls are. And her mom, because every teenager wants to bag on their mom, especially, you know, did she really do that? Or is that like your, I'm just maybe up in the drama, just a tidge. Yeah. No, that's a good theory for it. And and it, it's always fun to watch Kristen Wiig in a non-SNL, you know, non <laughs> kind of chuckle-chuckle uh, mode. So I enjoyed that. Uh, well, Laura, thank you so much for coming on to discuss it's the film. Uh, I think we'd recommend that our listeners go see it, right? Absolutely. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a really stunning performance and, and a great directorial debut. So check it out. That's Diary of a Teenage Girl, directed by Mariel Heller, starring Belle Poli, based on the graphic novel by Phoebe Gluckner. Thanks so much, Laura, for coming in. Thank you. All right. Before our next topic, let's have a word from our first sponsor. June, would you do the honors? Absolutely. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is sponsored by Next Issue. And Next Issue is the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anytime using your phone or tablet. When you sign up for Next Issue, you get immediate access to all the top magazines like People, Vogue, Esquire, Time, and more, including back issues and exclusive videos and photos. And Next Issue lets you dive deeper into the story with interactive content for a richer reading experience. And the best part is Next Issue is offering a free trial right now when you go to nextissue.com slash culture. That's a free trial right now when you go to nextissue.com dot com slash culture. Julia? All right. Now for television. 
Joining us for the next segment for his Culture Gab Fest debut is Mike Volo, one of my favorite Slate podcast voices in the podcast verse, uh, regular host, co-host of Lexicon Valley, one of Slate's greatest shows, and also the producer of such beloved favorites as The Political Gab Fest, Hang Up and Listen, Whistle Stop, and more, Mike <laughs> Volo. Hi, Mike. Thank you, Julia. Any listeners to the Slate Culture Gap Fest who do not listen to Lexicon Valley, you guys are drooling out there, so get on it. All right, on to our topic. We are convened today to discuss Fear the Walking Dead, which is the new, I believe the official and sanctioned term is companion show to The Walking Dead, which is the monster hit of AMC. We discussed The Walking Dead four or five years ago when it debuted. We're like, nice little zombie thing. Don't care much for zombies. Uh, Wish you well. (laughs) It has since become an insane juggernaut. The premiere of the original flavor, Walking Dead's, I think, fifth season, Mm -hmm. was, I think, the most watched cable television premiere of all time, Mm -hmm. counting your Sopranos, your Thrones, all your big stuff. Like, everyone in the country likes to watch these people kill zombies or get killed by zombies or become zombies, and so much so that we have now seen the dawn of this companion show. The Walking Dead starts with a man waking from a coma about six weeks into the apocalypse and the world as we know it is gone. Fear the Walking Dead backtracks a little bit. It's set in Los Angeles and starts just as things are beginning to get a little bit fishy. Let's start by listening to a clip. June, can you set up for us a little bit the key players in the show and then who we're going to hear in this clip? Yes. So Fear the Walking Dead is about a blended family, essentially. And that family is Kim Dickens as Maddie and the amazing Cliff Curtis, my favorite actor of all time, perhaps, as Travis. Uh, She has two kids, Alicia, who's a superstar academically, and Nick, who is a junkie. He has problems with heroin. So Nick has been injured uh, after his first waking up, and he's in hospital. And he's trying to explain to Travis, the man who lives with his mother, what he saw, and he's trying to figure out what happened. What did she do? She was eating. I don't know what I saw came from the powder. That's the thing. I don't. And if it didn't come from the powder, then it came out of me. My mind. And if that came out of me, then I'm insane, Travis. Yeah, I'm insane. So we're getting here a lot of the sense of the show, the texture of the show. There's these complicated human relationships that a lot of time is spent developing. Pretty great actors portraying them around, you know, around the show, I think. And we know what's coming, but these characters don't yet. So there's just this looming train on the horizon barreling toward us, and that provides much of the drama of the show. Mike is on the show today not just because he's one of our favorite Slate podcasters, but because he's one of the Slate podcasters we know who is a devoted and religious fan of the original series and one of the co-hosts of our Walking Dead spoiler special. So, Mike, we've got to get the fans' perspective on the show. What did you think of Fear the Walking Dead? I am a fan of the original series. I've seen every episode. And I think to talk about Fear the Walking Dead, you have to first 
talk a little bit about it in contrast to the original series. The original series opens some number of weeks right after the outbreak. Rick, who is the kind of ongoing protagonist of the show, he wakes from a coma, which is an an unfortunate, let's say, an unfortunate device in any plot line. (laughs) But people do fall into comas and people do wake (laughs) from them. And sometimes there are zombies. (laughs) Right. But the purpose of the coma was to allow us, the viewers, to enter this post-outbreak world and discover it for the first time along with Rick. It's great because we get to discover this weird world. The streets are desolate. Cars and buildings are abandoned. It's eerie. And we don't know what happened. And so... One of the reasons I was really looking forward to this spinoff is that I frequently found myself wondering throughout these past five, now soon to be six seasons of the original series, what's going on in other parts of the country? The original series takes place in a very kind of small pocket of the United States. It originates in Georgia, and they then travel up to Virginia and the D.C. area for reasons that are too complicated to go into. (laughs) But... Fear the Walking Dead begins just as the outbreak is developing, which is, I'll say, and we can get into this later, inherently less enticing to me, because the crisis is never as interesting as the aftermath, right? A crisis is all action. It's all panic. It's all heroicism. There's no time for what are, for me, the far more interesting kind of social and practical society building and survivalism questions that come up later. Also, I think this pilot episode and the second episode, I've seen two of them now, was way too much of a kind of soap operatic unfolding of this one, what the literature of the show calls a blended family and their internal drama as this external epidemic is breaking out. I'm so interested in that response, Mike, because I loved the, like, multicultural Brady Bunch meets the zombies aspect of this show. But I suspect that is entirely because I am not the target audience for this show. I will watch a horror movie from time to time. Like, I, you know, it's not my favorite genre. I don't love it. I don't totally get why people enjoy getting spooked. But I can posit that I will once a year, not for the auspices of this podcast, go get scared in a movie theater, maybe. Maybe once Mm -hmm. every five years. Like, I understand the pleasure. You you put your shirt over your face. You scream a little bit. And then you feel kind of cathartic when you get out of it. I cannot imagine inviting that into my living room every week. Like, I just don't want that in my living room every week. And especially what I understand to be the arc of Walking Dead, which is everybody you get attached to dies. Then you meet more people, then they die. Then you meet more people, they die. Except they, Rick. They, except except the, the one, the, the lone sheriff, the man against the wilderness. And of course, I'm making judgments based on no experience here. But the experience of being spooked in my living room, I don't relish or want. And the thing I do like in television and serial narrative dramas uh, is relationships, families, conflict. You know, I think the son who plays the addict who can't decide whether he what he's seen is real or a hallucination that means his drugs were laced or a hallucination that means he's really gone off the deep end is that, you know, addiction is a tale as old as time, but mm-hmm. actually 
not seen that often in dramas. It's in part because it's such a fucking depressing story. But I guess compared to the depressingness of the entire world going to shit, it's like a, at least a story with more hope. Right. This, this is this is basically a family drama in which the junkie narrative is the most hopeful one. Uh, right. And and so. And clearly, Nick is being set up to be the hero of the show. I think. Right. He's going to be the opposite of the Brian Cranston arc. He's the bad, unredeemed kid who's going to make good in this new world, potentially. Well, he's also, right. if I, if I, he's also, I think, a chance to show that actually zombies can be cured. Not because he is a zombie, but because he's a junkie. Another word that ends in IE that leads people shuffling, that eats people's brains, that, you know, takes away their actual soul and, and just kind of fills, you know, makes them move but not be themselves. Right, fills them with mindless desire. Yeah, yeah. so he, you know, in a way it's it's brilliant because we actually get to see there's something that can't happen on the other show, a zombie being cured, a zombie doing good or coming good. He can do that. So I found myself wrapped up in this family, but then also still not going to watch the show because (laughs) I know they're just all going to die or various of them are going to die. And I'm just basically found myself making bets with myself about what order they're going to die in. (laughs) Clearly, the boyfriend of the young girl is toast already. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, He's Matt in the show, but I love him as Malik in Suburgatory. And I was so sad that he seems to be on a short arc. We'll see. So it sounds to me, though, as someone who's actually experienced rather than denigrated the wildly popular Walking Dead, the pleasures of it are not... Not actually the killing and the shuffling and the spooking and the death, but kind of a survival narrative. Is that fair to say? It's not in the horror genre, in my opinion. So let me just tell you what it is that attracts me to the genre that I think it actually is a part of, which is apocalyptic fiction. I'm drawn to the apocalypse as a trope in fiction for a number of reasons, but I think there are a couple that are especially pertinent to The Walking Dead. Are you familiar with this phenomenon known as preppers or prepping? Mm -hmm. Yes. These, for those who are not initiated, these are people, mostly Americans, I think, although it's an international phenomenon. These are people who are prepping, preparing for what they call the SHTF scenario, right? That's when the shit hits the fan. (laughs) And... They build shelters, they pack a go-bag, they practice survivalism skills. And this SHTF scenario could be anything from, in some people's very warped minds, a race war. It could be a dissolution of the government in some way. It could even be a zombie apocalypse. Some people believe that that is possible. Now, I am not one of those people. (laughs) Let's just be clear. I am not a prepper. Yes. (laughs) However... I totally understand the fantasy, imagining, given an apocalyptic scenario, what would I do, right? Where would I go? What are my skills? And then acting out that fantasy vicariously, not actually like preppers, but vicariously through the hero or antihero of a show like The Walking Dead. It's just, it's very enticing. But another reason is that an apocalypse at least for those lucky enough to survive, (laughs) sets the civilization clock back to zero, which has many interesting implications. You now have to decide, how are we going to organize ourselves? What are the rules? Who's in charge, right? If we had to do things over in the United States, our constitution would look a little different than it does. We'd still have the Electoral College. I don't want to hear about that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, Right. but there there are some things that we very clearly would not include in that Constitution and that we would do differently. And in fact, we have changed the Constitution, 
right? So there are all of these, what I think are fascinating, kind of society building questions that occur when civilization gets upended, and you're now in a position where you have to think, okay, it's do-over time. Mike, this is all fine. I'm sure it's great. Actually, I, I do know it's great because in preparation for this segment, I started to watch The Walking Dead, which I'd never done, and I thought, well, I'll just watch one episode. And I actually inhaled the whole series, uh, the whole first season, excuse me, which was just six episodes. So it's not yeah, that but everybody knows June has a brain that's like zombifiable. <laughs> exactly. It's television zombifiable. Exactly. She's very susceptible. Exactly, I am. So I do understand the appeal, and, and I... The Walking Dead was not what I thought it was. And I think those of us who are, this is a sort of in-group or out-group experience, this show. And I think most of us on the out-group or formerly on the out-group have completely the wrong idea about what the show is. But I still, it's but you and I, I know from the past, we are completely opposites when it comes to television. You don't watch very much. I watch a lot. We, we each don't watch the shows the other watches. We have completely different interests. And although I completely get that, and I did enjoy that aspect of the first season of The Walking Dead, that's not what I enjoy. And for me, Fear the Walking Dead, which can we just say is a terrible title. It's a title that everyone will get wrong all the time. It's meaningless. Don't totally, well, it's not meaningless, but it's silly. Is <laughs> much more interesting to me because it's about pre, at least for the moment, it's about pre-apocalypse. You're interested post-apocalypse. I'm interested pre-apocalypse. I'm interested yeah. in these, what can be shallow policing allegories. I'm interested in what it means about families, what it means when your kid doesn't answer the phone because he's mad at his dad. And that means that you can't save him from the zombie, you know, like, which maybe that doesn't necessarily happen. But I'm much more interested in those questions. Yeah. I mean, I also think that the thing I like about watching the crisis moment is seeing how a culture sniffs out the signals, right? We're in the news business. We're tracking signals of change all the time. And mostly we assume that everything is happening for reasons that are normal and within the bounds of our own experience. We're in the middle of a stock market crash. I'm pretty sure it's not because of zombies. Who knows? Maybe we'll look back ruefully on this podcast episode one day and think, oh, if only she knew. <laughs> but, you know, I also love apocalypse narratives. I mean, you're right. It's so fascinating. And, and your description of what appeals to you about apocalypse narrative generally and about this show in particular makes me think I should give The Walking Dead another look. The thing is, I like to watch apocalypse narratives when the apocalypse is over. Like, I don't want my apocalypse interrupted by spooky, bloody things. Like, I would rather just like, OK, new world. Whew, clean slate. Yeah. Maybe it's hard to find food. Maybe there's rival bands who are going to get you with guns. But just all of the, like, dead-eyed lurching. I just don't want those lurchers around all the time. I just, I don't, I, you know. Not only am I drawn to the apocalyptic premise, but I believe that the zombie apocalypse is the best apocalypse. And maybe this could answer some of your concerns about why you feel... Like, you can't kind of hang with this violence in the show. It's not the violence. I don't mind violence. It's the, it's, I mean, that's why I use the word horror. It's the tension and release of the, the music and the dark corner and the guy in the place and the thing. Ah! It's that. It's that thing. But doesn't that make you feel alive? And isn't that what you want from a theatrical experience? No. No, the thing that makes me feel alive is <laughs> no. yearning for random characters to make out. I have no shame, <laughs> but I, I really like to yearn for random characters to make out. I can't explain it. I'm not a prepper. I'm a shipper. That's my <laughs> I tribe. Feel like, I feel like we are reaching across microphones to each other from parallel universes right now. <laughs> Probably. 
I mean, I well, I sort of enjoyed the pilot of Evolution or Revolution or Evolve mm-hmm. or whatever the post-apocalyptic <laughs> show was about the electromagnetic pulse. But it's true that the suspense there was just a lot of people like banging on machinery, being like, turn on, computer, turn on, <laughs> which is, I, I get that that's a less electrifying dramatic experience than shooting a, a like lurching hulk of blood in the head. I, I gave that show one episode. <laughs> I watched it for way too long, but it, it did fade out. Well, I think one problem with that show is that the acting was dreadful, and everybody seemed to be cast for their pretty eyelashes. And the acting, I think, in this show, in Fear the Walking Dead, is pretty good. I think, you know, our, our potentially junky, zombie-stomping future hero is a little bit like a... He looks a little bit like Taylor Kitsch in the Friday Night Lights days, but if someone took a Brillo pad to his face, like his features are sort of beautifully unformed and malleable seeming. He also has a little air of Johnny Depp as well. Young, beautiful Johnny Depp. Couldn't not think of him as Johnny Depp throughout the show. Yeah, definitely. had a little baby Johnny Depp happening. I agree that Kim Dickens is just perennially wonderful in everything she touches. I mean, she's always like earthy and put upon, but she does earthy and put upon better than anybody else. Cliff Curtis, I agree, is terrific as the boyfriend type. I, so I'm just fascinated. I mean, it seems well, like... But the kids, I, I would push back on the kids. The daughter, Alicia, who is from Maddie's first marriage, and the son, Christopher, who is from Travis's first marriage, the word that kept running through my mind as I was watching these first two episodes was a German word that I don't know if you're familiar with. It's... Uh, no. Back Pfeifengesiegt. <laughs> Please Not explain. I'm familiar with that one. <laughs> it's uh, a face in need of a slap. God. <laughs> Wait, say it again. <laughs> Back Pfeifengesiegt. In any event, I expect it will have a huge audience. Mike, will you be among this audience? I will, I think, keep watching. And I hope that the show doesn't fall into the same trap that the original series has, which very quickly is, I think The Walking Dead is best when the group is on the move. I don't like when they're situated in one place for a long period of time. I think that really kind of kills the energy of the show and it kills what the show is about, which is ultimately what is around the next corner, what is happening in other places. So I'll stick with it. All right. We've got one yes. June? No. We'll, well uh, maybe for Cliff Curtis. <laughs> All right, we June, let's one. watch it together. <laughs> I would listen to that spoiler special podcast. All right, Mike, thank you so much for for coming on, for explaining the appeal of The Walking Dead. I feel that I understand the show in a new light. Listeners, come to our Facebook page and tell us whether you watch the original, whether you're watching Fear the Walking Dead, whether you can think of anyone earthier or more beset by life's problems than Kim Dickens. That's facebook.com slash culturefest. Thanks again, Mike, for coming on for the segment. Thank you so much, guys. All right. Before our final topic with Amanda Hess, we have a brief advertisement, and I'm so excited about this sponsor. The Culture Gap Fest this week is brought to you by WhisperSync for voice and Amazon and Audible innovation. Wish you had more time to read? Here's how you can create more book time. Add narration to your Kindle eBooks. Read on your tablet, and when it's time to go, pick up where you left off by switching to audio and listening on your phone. The best part is that the app knows where you are in the book, so you'll pick up the story right where you stopped reading. Can I just say that I w- have been waiting for someone to invent this technology for like a decade? I literally, I, I loved the audiobook of the Steve Jobs, the Walter Isaacson Steve Jobs book, and I listened to it while I was driving cross country. I believe actually to a culture, a live culture gap <laughs> fest in Los Angeles, and I was traveling by myself, so I was listening on the road during the day. And then I would stop for lunch and want to read or want to read at night. And I spent hours of that trip, like 
tapping forward in the stupid app to catch up to where I'd read mm-hmm. in the paper book the night before and then flipping through in the paper book to figure out, you know, and it's sort of a cyclical story. So I was like, oh, Steve Jobs just betrayed someone. That's where I was. And then I was like, oh, no, wait, that's the other time he betrayed someone. And I was <laughs> at the next time he betrayed someone. And in any event, this is like so clearly a technology that needed to exist. It's the future. And I'm so glad that the future is now here. So you can now add narration to over 60,000 Kindle bestsellers and popular titles. It's called WhisperSync for Voice. And to learn more about this amazing technology and how to add narration to your own Kindle ebooks, go to Amazon.com slash CultureFest. All right, on to our next topic. Joining us for our third topic today is Amanda Hess. Hello, Amanda. Hi, guys. I'm so delighted to have the occasion of the massive hacking of a uh, cheating website uh, as the occasion to bring you on the show. <laughs> I, know. I will take any excuse to be on the Culture Gap Fest. Uh, well, we're so delighted to have you here. So you join us today to talk to us about Ashley Madison, the cheating website which was hacked and uh, whose user profiles were leaked a couple weeks ago and which have spawned much news coverage and much uh, rending of garments about the future of privacy and what we should all think and what we should feel about each other's marriages. Amanda, you wrote a piece for your user's column about how we should all feel about the Ashley Madison hack. So tell us, how should we all feel about the (laughs) Ashley Madison hack? Well, that was actually a bit of a trick where I teased that I would know how to feel about it because my conclusion was that we should feel very morally conflicted about it. And I think that is one reason why a hacker might target a site like Ashley Madison because they know how many people will just be fascinated and disturbed and, you know, want to talk about what they find, whether or not they find their spouse's email in the dump. Tell us a little bit, walk us through exactly what happened, the scope of the leak, the timing, you know, do we know who hacked them? Give us the particulars. Yeah. So a few weeks ago, a hacker collective who called themselves the Impact Team announced that they had hacked the Ashley Madison database and they released a little bit of information that they had found on it sort of to tease the people who run Ashley Madison that they uh, had legitimate information. Ashley Madison downplayed the reality of that statement. And then a week or so ago, Impact Team released a very large dump of information that they had found, including names of people who had signed up for Ashley Madison over the past um, five or so years. In some cases, credit card information from paid members, kinks that people want to explore outside of their marriage, stuff like that. And then a couple of days later, they also released corporate emails from Ashley Madison leaders and uh, employees talking about um, various internal schemes. And there was kind of a moral or a moralistic element to the hack, right? I mean, at first, it was almost as if it was a consumer issue, you know, that that Ashley Madison was charging $19 to delete people's accounts and wasn't doing it. But then there also seemed like there was a moral element because they did call the users cheating dirtbags and they chose not to reveal information about people on Cougar Life, right? Right. Yeah, I think one of the most confusing things that happens when a hack like this occurs is that we really don't know anything about the people who have decided to do this. I know that Ashley Madison in the past has suggested that it might be someone who has some close ties to the organization just based on some of the statements that they are making. It could be a personal vendetta 
but in terms of what they actually told the public about why they were doing it, they had this confusing justification, which was because Ashley Madison is not sufficiently protecting its users, because their security isn't good enough, we're going to release all of it publicly, which is sort of, you know, a self-justifying excuse for any hack. Like, we're justified in doing it because we can do it. Ashley Madison is going further than most companies, I think, in that they are they charge people a fee to do a full delete of their account activity, including, you know, if I'm an Ashley Madison user and I go on there and I start chatting with this guy, if he pays to delete his whole history, my messages with him disappear. His side of the messages disappear, too. So more than you would see on, you know, Facebook or something if you deactivated your account. But yeah, they also have a sort of (laughs) quasi-feminist bent to some of the statements that they've made. The Ashley Madison parent company owns Ashley Madison, another site called Established Men, (laughs) uh, which is for older men uh, with some money dating younger men with less money. Older gentlemen of means. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then also a site called Cougar Life. And They uh, threatened to release the Ashley Madison data and the established men data, but not Cougar Life. They're leaving the Cougars alone um, and really, you know, emphasizing how male the Ashley Madison user base is, even though there, there are certainly women on Ashley Madison and not all of them are sex workers or robots. So... It's so confusing because one of the things that happens with these hacks is you get a lot of what often seem like divergent impulses aligned in a strange way. So you have kind of a radical transparency impulse of like, I mean, your metaphor of of you have bad consumer protection, so we're going to expose all your user data is a little bit like, oh, you have a faulty lock on your door, so we're going to burn your house down. Like, (laughs) it seems like a disproportionate response if that's the actual concern, right? And also a response that has potentially devastating effects on the lives of how many people were affected by the hack? Tens of millions of people. Yeah, I mean, it's tens of millions of accounts. Some of, you know, as as was frequently noted that in, in the early coverage of the hack, there was no user verification of the accounts. So multiple people set up like Rabak Obama accounts at whitehouse.gov. Not all of those user accounts are real, but a substantial number of them were. So you have this kind of radical transparency impulse. And then you have sort of a sexual conservatism impulse of like, let's police the marriages of everybody who's found on this database, or let's at least give anybody who wants private people, the media, anybody who wants to troll through this database, the means to police each other's marriages and to police this very conservative institution. Then you have this kind of sexual vigilante impulse, which also feels slightly paternalistic, like we're going to protect the mostly female partners of these cheating men, Mm -hmm. but we're not going to, you know, shame the cougars trolling for sex on cougar life or doing whatever they're doing there. So you're like, I think the mystery at the heart of who's doing the hack and what motivates them seems part of these stories, because it's hard to get your head around what sort of person would be united by those disparate impulses. Right. And then I think there's another layer that is put on top of that, which is which stories found in the leak will the media cover? And I think in general, what we're seeing is that sites like Gawker or other tabloid oriented sites will report on anyone who is is famous enough for people to be interested that they might be on this database. But also there's this um, 
Another strange justification that I think is sometimes used, which is that the people who have been found on Ashley Madison are hypocritical in some way. Uh, so Josh Duggar, is that how you say his name? I guess. <laughs> One of the sons of the Duggar family. I know. I mean, someone who I didn't realize this guy had a TV show that is a spinoff of his parents' many-child TV show. I don't know who he, who he was before he was accused of molesting his sisters. And his story is so interesting to me. So he, uh, someone, you know, plugged in his name or his email and discovered that he had an Ashley Madison account and he admitted to it. Uh, it was covered, you know, in many, many places. Including Slate.com. Including Slate.com. And I just, like, after he molested people, I just don't, I don't care that he cheated on uh, his wife. Um, but also I was never invested in his, you know, conservative moralizing anyway. It's possible that there are some people who are fans of the Duggars will feel that they want to know this information because they've been watching a reality show where he's been lying to them about um, who he is and what his values are. And as a consumer, they've sort of been defrauded in that way. But for me, as someone who's not a consumer of that show, I don't really get any delight or interest out of exposing a hypocrite. It does feel very dirty to me. I mean, as many people have observed, it's hard for me to understand why people would use a cheating website. It just seems, I'm not going to say asking for trouble exactly, but, well, maybe I am saying that. I mean, I totally understand the, I'm not at all moralistic about cheating, and I'm making uh, quotation marks. So I think there are many reasons that people want to have sexual relationships with people other than their spouses. It's not always cheating. It's often with permission. But I don't know, like, first we come for the cheaters, we, and then we say it's okay, because they're cheaters. You know, who, where do we draw the line? And I don't mean as journalists making decisions about stories, but just as people. Is it like going to the street, seeing that somebody has a pillowcase full of stuff that they've just taken from someone's apartment, and thinking, well, shall I riffle through it? Not as a journalist saying, oh, I've got a story because that's like, a, a, you know, some piece of art, but just as people. I mean, it's complicated because journalists deal with improperly obtained data all the time, right? Are you right. saying journalists are people? <laughs> <laughs> and some of the most important stories, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, and part, part of your job is to, Amanda, is to call people up and go meet with people and get them to tell you shit that they probably shouldn't tell you. Right. Right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm curious from your perspective, like, do you wish that Slate had a, like, leak alarm and we just, like, put a siren, <laughs> you know, uh, emoji on Slack and every time there was a data dump, we were just, like, elbow deep in it, just like rapaciously going through it to find the best dirt. I don't know, because I think it would be a distraction from uh, the type of work that we have to do to, you know, even figure out what an important story is for Slate or for us. Um, and so to just take what is like dumped on our doorstep, it's like people who call a newspaper on the phone and they leave a voicemail about this amazing story that they have. Once in a while, they'll have an amazing story. Usually they're kind of crazy or they have a personal vendetta that they're not telling you. And it's probably best not 
to publish it. And that's probably the same here, where once in a while there's going to be something important. I mean, that, again, is the problem, is that the agendas of these hackers are mysterious and veiled, you know, in all of these cases. And they remain so to varying degrees. And you feel, you end up feeling like, okay, I have this team of journalists to mobilize. It's small. We have a big world to cover. We have a lot of things we want to do. Because some group of lawbreakers decided to attack some random Canadian cheating site, which does not seem like an important story, really, apart from what it says about hacking and security in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to, like, mobilize some of my precious resources to, like, root around for the Duggar's dirty laundry. Like, that just seems like a really stupid use of manpower, among other. like, never mind the moral questions. Right. But I think the question that the succession of recent very public and and humiliating for their targets hacks... Uh, raise for all of us, which is, are we going to live in 5, 10, 15 years slash eight months in a world where nothing that we communicate electronically is private? Like, should we be operating now on the principle that every email and text and IM and photo that we send anyone, every order we place on every e-commerce site will eventually be in a searchable database for everyone we have ever met to search? I like beginning to feel like the answer to that question is yes. And I have not yet adjusted my behavior accordingly, but it's beginning to seem increasingly plausible that, you know, you guys are all going to know about the like pedicure appointment I booked like on a website and the diapers I bought. And (laughs) I'm sure more embarrassing things than those two. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and, like every snide thing I ever said in an email to my girlfriends, like... Do you guys believe that these hacks will wake people up to put privacy risks and cause either a change in security or a change in behavior such that the future I envision will not come to pass? Or do you think we're headed there? I mean, I agree with you that I think it's totally plausible that everything that I say in private will someday be public. And actually, you know, like I I sort of hope that my G-chats are like released (laughs) upon my death, like my collected (laughs) G-chats. Be amazing. Uh, But I don't want that to happen before I die. Um, But at the same time, you know, I think it's increasingly difficult for me not to say things that I need to Mm -hmm. say to my best friend. And I can't just call her on the phone when I'm working, when I'm supposed to be working. Sometimes I need to G-chat something and I can't imagine being able to stop that impulse because of some random weirdo, you know, that maybe two years from now is going to hack into it. That being said, you know, I hope that it leads to more pressure on technology companies that are profiting so much off of all of our secrets that we're telling each other on them to be more serious about it. I guess in that way, I do agree with whatever the hackers believe in that Ashley Madison, you know, even now, if you go to the website, they aren't saying anything about the hack on the homepage. They have this like this little graphic on the site that's like totally secure, <laughs> two <laughs> thumbs up, come mm-hmm. in here. So I do think they have some responsibility for it. I also think just people need to not hack into a database and release tens of millions of people's <laughs> data. That's not an acceptable thing for a person to do to fix that problem. But they're going to keep doing it. I don't know, June, do you, have you started uh, amending your G-chats? No, but I, I, I haven't started amending them, but I am paranoid every time I'm typing. You know, every time I type somebody's name, I think, 
oh my god what if she ever sees that because I never write about men uh, <laughs> and, and like that's crazy because that is like that is literally a form of insanity when you think that people can hear your thoughts because I mean I don't know about the rest of y'all, but I've come to think that when I'm like moving my fingers over a keyboard, those are my thoughts. I'm figuring out what I think. And people potentially, other than the people I'm talking to, are going to be able to... I, I dread the thought of them seeing it. And I don't want to modulate my thoughts slash my G-chats. I want, it, I want to be able to express myself. But I do definitely think that somebody's going to see that. I don't have any faith in in that privacy that we used to have. And I also, I don't want to talk on the phone. I hate the phone. I don't want to do that. I don't necessarily want to see people in person. Ew. But then, <laughs> like, what's left? I mean, I mean, it's almost like one of those, I, it does feel like science fiction to me. Like, yeah. it feels like we're at the precipice of this. I mean, this sounds, Apocalypse. this sounds crazy. It does. It makes you feel paranoiac. But it feels like we're on the precipice of an entirely different mode of human interaction to me. And that there is a, like, super race among us of people who understand <laughs> technology <laughs> in a way that the rest of us don't. And that they have an and edge. destroy us. They will. I mean, there was one thing, actually, about this that made me feel like I was living in an alternate universe, which is that Josh Duggar's wife's brother... <laughs> posted on Facebook all of his complaints about the fact that his sister was married to this guy and encouraging her to leave. And one of his Facebook friends said, there's interest in launching a GoFundMe account to help her escape. And I was like, I can't handle this. Like, I can't handle how much technology has, like, infiltrated into all of these different things. And she needs a GoFundMe account to... No, let's crowdsource. Let's, let's crowdsource the dissolution of her marriage or the the reason exactly. for it, and then crowdsource the means of. I know. Let's break it up. Then let's. Yeah, exactly. But I, you know, the thing that is actually the most confusing thing to me about the whole Ashley Madison affair, wink, is that <laughs> the people who care most about the information in that database are people who live in the same house. As the phone and the computer yeah. that the cheater is using. And it would be easy for them to just do a little snooping. Can you pass me your phone? I just <laughs> want to look at your text. I know. And figure it out themselves. I also don't, you know, necessarily condone that. But, I mean, how easy? You don't need a, you don't need a, a hacker to help you figure out if, you know, your spouse is doing something they shouldn't be doing on the internet. And then you can also see all the things they're G-chatting about <laughs> you to their friends or whatever. And yet, you know, the rest of us do seem maybe horrified, also interested, fascinated in it, even though it really has nothing to do with us. One, all right, one final question for you guys. So some people make the case about mass shooters that the media should just not cover them, right? That you should not accord them any attention, that part of what they want is fame and glory and their macabre faces and mugshots to be splashed over tabloid covers all over the world, and that actually the responsible thing for journalists to do would be to, like, never mention their names, never publish any images of them. Do you think there's a case to be made? Do you think there should be people out there on the soapbox arguing that we should all collectively ignore all of these hacks? I mean, it would never work. But, like, sh should, the, should, there, should, should the slates of the world, should the places that are not going to have a SWAT team, like, digging through every next cache of stolen data, should we also decide not to, to cover the whatever the, the muckrakers dig up? 
I mean, is Ben Affleck in it? (laughs) Because I would really care about that. Like, I don't care about Josh Duggar, but I care about Ben Affleck and his whole thing. I don't know. I mean, I think there are a couple of people who are arguing that. This name I really can't pronounce. Heather Haverleski? Heather Haverleski, yeah. Uh, at New York Magazine has been writing columns recently about this, encouraging us all to ignore it. And as a person, I agree with her. And as a journalist, I say, but you're not ignoring it. You're writing a wonderful column about it. So why can't I also? Uh, So I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I'm still poking at the mushroom. All right. Well, listeners, let us know if you've uh, keeled over dead from toxins or if you've uncovered a cache of gold coins at facebook.com slash culturefest. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on to chat. Thanks for having me. Uh, Would you ever stick around and endorse? I will think of something to endorse. All right. I'll make June go first. June, it's endorsement time. What do you have? So I have been reading a book that I am so excited by. It's a huge book. I don't like big books. It's a huge book. It's like 800 pages. It's really heavy. There are all these reasons that it aggravates me. It's about material that I kind of know, but it is so good that I'm toting this damn thing around with me nevertheless. It's called The Gay Revolution, The Story of the Struggle. It's by Lillian Faderman, and it's kind of about the gay revolution. And I know this story. It's not that it is particularly to me new material, although I think it will be to many readers, but it is told through personalities, through the people who were involved in these events. And that sounds very banal. That doesn't sound unusual, but it really is. And it's very well written. It really sort of makes events that may be familiar seem very fresh, even the most overexposed ones like Stonewall. And it's just a fantastic book. So even though it's big, it's beautiful. And it's called The Gay Revolution. When was it published? It's actually not out until September 8th. Um, but it may be uh, sort of straggling into bookstores now. The, the official publication day is September 8th, ah, though. That sounds really interesting. Amanda, are you ready or should I go first? I'm ready. All right. Hit it. <laughs> so I don't have a dog because I have no interest in owning a dog and I don't have time to feed a dog and walk a dog. Uh, Great but- reasons. <laughs> For every reason I don't own a dog, except I sometimes, you know, enjoy interacting with dogs. And my boyfriend loves dogs. And so recently what we've been doing is going to off-leash hours at night at our local park and just sitting on a bench and interacting with all of the other people's dogs as they have to, like, yell at them and, like, pick up their poop and stuff. And we just, like, sit around and pet them. And it is incredibly relaxing. And I recommend it. So you guys are dog parasites, basically. Yeah, we're like creep. We're like dog creeps. <laughs> Amazing. You know, they have those signs in in playgrounds for kids. That's like you can only enter the playground if you have a child yes. with you. I can report that they have that at dog parks also. But at <laughs> off leash hours at a regular park, nobody can stop you from going in. So. Wow. All right. So you found the loophole. Amazing. My endorsement is going to be the terrific interview with Quentin Tarantino by Lane Brown in this week's issue of New York Magazine. It's their fall preview issue. Quentin Tarantino just seems like he's in a delightful phase of his career. He is in fine fettle in that interview. He talks smack about other artists and creative people and companies by name, which nobody ever does. No prominent figure ever does in an interview anymore. It is so delightful and refreshing when people talk smack. And he also does it in a way that seems charmingly without agenda or vitriol. Mm -hmm. Like, he's just like, look, I very clearly have my own point of view, and I it is teeming out of me. I cannot keep it in, and I must tell you that I think this director is bullshit, and this movie was crud. But it's like, you know, 
It's not because I feel any insecurity or jealousy or anxiety or I'm out to get that person or have any agenda. It's just so clearly true within my own worldview. And it's just bracing to be in his presence in the same way that I find it at least bracing to be ensconced in one of his movie worlds. Like his, it just must be crazy to be inside Quentin Tarantino's brain. The sheer amount of aesthetic certainty that emanates from him in everything he does, including just like a conversation and text on the page, is remains startling. Uh, all right. Amanda, thanks for joining us and closing out the show. Thanks for having me. And June, thanks for being my trusty sidekick on this Dana-less, Steve-less mission. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. The producer of our show is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is Joel Beyer. And our executive producer is Andy Bowers. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is part of the Panoply Network. And you can check out our entire roster at iTunes.com slash Panoply. Our Twitter feed is Slate Cult Fest. For June Thomas, Laura Miller, Mike Volo, and Amanda Hess, I'm Julia Turner. And thanks for joining us. Cheating heart will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. Your cheating heart will tell on you. 